What time is it, you wonder? Well, it's time for Drinks with Tony on KPCRLP Santa Cruz 101.9 FM. Hi, I'm Michael Easter, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Michael Easter. He's the author of The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, Healthy Self. Michael, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, The Comfort Crisis, it's mind-blowing. I thought we were supposed to be comfortable. I thought we were supposed to achieve all the money we can and all the success we can. So we can sit by a pool and drink margaritas till we die. Well, I would say those things are great. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you're right. You're tapping into something that I, that I talk about in the book is that um, humans are wired to do what is most comfortable to try and make life easier, more effortless to remove the challenge from our lives because in our past environments, as we evolved as humans in these environments that were rough and tumble, that were challenging where everything was hard, doing what was most comfortable and easy kept us alive, right? It told us to avoid unnecessary movement, i.e. exercise. It told us to (laughs) sit around when we could. It told us to eat the most calorie dense foods we could. It told us to avoid all risk, all challenge. But now in the last hundred years, especially, we've really made the world easy and effortless and removed all that stuff from our life. So there's essentially a mismatch between these drives we have to be comfortable in this comfortable environment. It's not serving us anymore. So you look at the data and it's really linked to a lot of the most pressing problems that we have now. So this just happened to me about an hour ago and this is gonna be way too much information, but I I had to use the restroom, right? And I couldn't find my phone. So I had to grab a magazine and I go into the bathroom with a magazine and I was thinking about it. I'm like, this is how we used to go to the bathroom. Like when I was young and would go, like when I was at work, I would grab a newspaper, fold it up in my pocket and go use the restroom. And now I don't, now I'm like, where's my computer that's connected to everything in the world? I'm like, why do I need all that information when I'm just going to the bathroom? Yes, that is a good question. And I actually have an answer for that. Um, So humans are wired to want as much information as we can get. So if you think about these environments that we evolved in, if you could have information, especially about the future, for example, the weather, um, whether there was a tiger lurking in the bushes ahead, et cetera, et cetera, all this stuff, that has survival advantage. So we're, we, we always wanted to get as much information as we can to be connected. But now we're in this world where, yeah, you can go on your cell phone and go on Instagram and learn what that kid you went to high school with 10, 20, 30 years ago ate for lunch. Uh, what the former president of the United States said today, uh, what X, Y, Z. And it's just like this overload, right? And it can, it, uh, you look at the data and part of the reason that you see things like anxiety and depression rising is in part because we just have this influx of digital media. So the average person each day, this is kind of a crazy stat, they spend 11 hours a day engaging with digital media. That's from phones, as you put, because I'm the same way, man. I'm bringing that phone into the bathroom. <laughs> no question. Uh, but then we also have Netflix. We're, a lot of us work from behind a computer screen or on the internet all day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, just, and even when I think about Netflix, I think about weird things too often. So I'm so glad we're talking. But like, 
I, I would, I remember the days when me and my friends would go to the local video shop and we would spend 30 minutes trying to figure out what film we were going to watch later and put into the DB, into the v, VHS player, which, you know, was the big technology back then. And then we would all enjoy the film. And now when so much choice is just at us, it's just, I get, I even get lost when I'm alone. I'm like, what do I watch? And I spend like an hour going, and ah, none of this is going to work out. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, it's almost like, um, yeah, well, you do it really well because you you go off with these uh, with this guy who goes hunting in glaciers. <laughs> you're like you're like, hey, check this out. We're going to zero. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm going all over the place here. Bear with me. <laughs> How, no, that's cool. Yeah. So you go to zero, and then that's that's the ultimate and utter discomfort. Yeah. I mean, and when I say go to zero, I mean you just you're not connected. Um, yeah. re- redeem me here. Cause that wasn't a question and that was just a terrible vomit launch. So I no, hope, no, I hope you I, got something out of it. <laughs> no, I, I think I, I think I caught the vomit as it came in for sure. It's good. It's good vomit. Um, first of all, I'll say, this is just a random observation. I was thinking yesterday actually about when I would be home from college in the summers, I would go and I would go to a video store, like you just mentioned, and I would rent um, the DVD of like a, a season of a show I was watching. And I went through the entire Sopranos one summer and like just fixated on it and could watch three, four episodes in a row. Nowadays, I could never do that. Cause I'd be like, Oh, my phone, I got to watch it. And then I'd have to rewind. And like, our attention is just so fractured. So I just think that's an example of like how things have changed. Right. Um, but in terms of the journey I took into Alaska, yeah. So part of this book is um, the overarching narrative is about this uh, month long that I spent in the Arctic backcountry. And that was a total reset. And what was really interesting uh, as it deals with the topic we're talking about now is that all of a sudden I found myself bored again, right? So it's like we're on this hunting expedition, we're hunting caribou. And uh, caribou are migrating. So a lot of it is waiting for them to come through an area you're anticipating that they're going to come through. Now, they didn't want to seem to do that. So we would sit for like two, three, four days at a time, just on this hill, just waiting. I didn't have my cell phone, didn't work up there. Uh, I didn't have magazines. I didn't have books. I didn't have anything. So I was doing things like reading the label of a cliff bar reading the, you know, the, uh, tags in my outdoor clothes. And then I'd have to like, sort of switch to something else to think about. And it was uncomfortable. That boredom is uncomfortable. Now it turns out that boredom is actually beneficial. It's this evolutionary discomfort that humans evolved to face. So boredom, uh, it's really neither good nor bad, but what boredom does is it tells us go do something. And in the past, it would be like, hey, whatever you're doing right now, your return on your time invested, it has worn thin. So you need to spend your attention elsewhere. Now, this could be an example would be like, let's say we're out hunting and the hunt is just not going well. We know we're not going to get resources. Boredom kicks on. We're like, well, this sucks. Let's go do something else to find food, right? So we used to have these productive outlets for our boredom. It would, we would usually be cued into doing something that was beneficial for our lives and would r- give us a return. Nowadays, when boredom kicks on, we have these new, wacky, easy outlets for our boredom. So now when boredom kicks on, it's not, okay, I'm going to sit down and read War and Peace, or I'm going to do X, Y, Z that's going to improve my life. It's like Twitter, Instagram, that new Netflix series, which 
don't get me wrong, that stuff can be great. But the problem is that we just never really experienced boredom anymore and let it take our minds where our minds need to go to do really interesting and creative things. I mean, when you look at the research, boredom is one of the key drivers of creativity, but now we're not letting it go to those creative places. We're, we're letting it take our minds into our phones or screens or TV. Yeah. It's the, it blows my mind that the creativity, the creativity part of boredom is really important. It's um, you need to get to that place where you're just, I think if you're, you know, if I'm writing something, I need to be bored with it and then things happen. And I just, what, what is the solution for people like me who don't want to go hunting in Alaska? <laughs> what, what, totally. what do I do? <laughs> yeah. So I've actually, you know, when I being up there, I kind of realized, wow, this thing is good and I should experience it more. So a lot of what I'll do, you know, I think to back up, I think that um, when you look at who designs apps, it is people much smarter than me. They're in a lab in MIT or Stanford, and they sit around all day trying to figure out how can I get this person to engage with this app for more time? This is what they do for a living. I'm a moron. I don't stand a chance against these guys. So I think for me, it's like, how do I just completely remove myself from the phone and have these times where I'm just not around any digital media at all? So for me, that's I'll take long walks in nature as like, when I, you know, I'll work for on something creative for an hour or two, and then things sort of start to, eh, they feel a little harder. So I'll go out for a walk, you know, through the desert. I live on the edge of the desert. Um, or I'll just leave my cell phone at home when I go out and do random things. Even just driving around without the radio on is like this interesting, like, oh, you know, where's my mind going to go? So I think it's finding these little wins you can um, to just rediscover boredom. You know, there's all, and I think also realizing that it's not just your phone. It's also what's in your computer. It's also what's in your TV, because a lot of times people think, okay, I know that I spend too much time on my phone. So they decide they're going to cut an hour of their screen time off, but then they spend it on a different screen like Netflix, right? It's really, we just need less time with digital media overall. When, when you went to um, Alaska, for a month and we're just cut off. Did you, did you do something to prepare for that? Um, like, did you start to kind of go out on your own and go, okay, I can, I need to like work up to this or have you been, were you working up to it in general before? And then you're like, all right, drop me in. Or we, I mean, if I went to Alaska right now, the way you did, I would have been like, where's the nearest hospital? What's the, <laughs> what's the closest cell phone tower? Wait, what if I get, you know, pneumonia? <laughs> The answer is far away, far away. And I hope the plane arrives in time. Um, <laughs> uh, so I had been the guy that I went up um, hunting with, his name is Donnie Vincent, and he's a backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker. Um, he makes these documentaries that are sort of like planet earth, but with hunting, like they're not anything like you'd see on the outdoor channel. I mean, this guy is really interesting, intellectual, just as far out dude. And he spends like months at a time in these wild places he must be calm does does he have just this demeanor of utter calmness and like divinity almost yes yes (laughs) so when you are well what's really funny about donnie is um when you are in the wild with him it doesn't matter how bad it gets he's just completely calm just has no fear of things like grizzly bears and crazy storms he's just like oh this is what you do you know it's just very calm but it's what's also funny is when you get him in modern life with like a lot of 
stimulation, he kind of just is like, Oh, what do I do? You know, he's the kind of guy where you're like, we're in line for TSA and you're like, Donnie, you have to check your knife. Donnie, you have to take your boots off. Donnie, you have to, you know, and he's like, Oh, Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> Oh, that is so beautiful. I would love to not think about that. I know. Right. It's a, uh, it's amazing. But, um, so I had gone hunting with him once before, but it was only for, I think four or five days. And this was in Nevada, similar situation off the grid. So I kind of knew through that experience that I was going to be, I was going to face some boredom up there. Um, I didn't know what it would be like for, you know, weeks at a time in boredom, but I did sort of have a taste of it. And it was like that, except just kind of on steroids. Right. But at the same time, when I got back from Nevada, same thing happened when I got back from the Arctic, it's like, I just felt a lot calmer, like more at peace. Cause you have this like complete removal. And, um, part of that too, is just that extended time outdoors. So humans spend 95% of our time indoors now, and this is new, right? Humans evolved for about 2.5 million years outside in the sense that we lived outside, right? We were yeah. outside 100% of the time. So when you sort of now put us into these indoor environments, that's led to a lot of changes and, you know, all this interaction with media we have. So people in the modern world, they tend to ride these um, brainwaves that are called beta waves. And they're really like frenetic, go, go, go. This is why we're so like kind of anxious, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's this thing called the three-day effect. And it's basically found that once people are out in sort of backcountry nature for three or more days without interaction from digital media and sort of the modern world, their brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. And alpha waves are found in experienced meditators. I mean, like the people who are like at the highest levels of, of meditation and they're super calming. They're associated with creativity, greater life satisfaction. Just sort of for me, I can tell you, like when I was up there, I was calmer than I'd ever been. You would think that because of weather and grizzlies and crazy stuff, I would be totally, you know, on edge the whole time. But the, but the opposite was true. Of course, when you see a grizzly, I'll have like a sharp spike in stress. <laughs> but yeah. overall, as a whole, it was just like, I felt very calm and connected. And it was also sort of strips away a lot of the extra stuff I'll say in your life. You suddenly like don't care about, you know, I don't know, that person in the office that kind of annoys you or like, <laughs> am I going to have, you know, I need to buy this new thing or just all these like random things that we kind of get hung up on and you start, it's really strips away the layers and you start to really see what matters to you most and more care about that. It's interesting that you found connectedness by not being as digitally connected. Wait, what's the, what's the connection that you're, that you're uh, talking about when you say that? So I think that, you know, in the digital world, there's so much noise, right? Yeah. It's like we have, <laughs> we've all got a thousand friends on Facebook. How many of those people would you actually like to hang out with? Exactly. That blows my mind all the time. Cause I'm sitting there going, wait, why am I friends and care about this person? Because I would never eat lunch with this person. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what am I doing? But I exactly. still want to know. And then I'm just like, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a bad habit. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so I think real connection comes from face-to-face -face honest interactions with the people that you actually care about. You know, for me, that's like my wife, my mom, a handful of friends. And you start to really 
that becomes more apparent to you because once you're out there for an extended period of time, that is what you miss. That is what you really look forward to coming back to. And it helps reframe all that other stuff, that outside noise, I think that can consume our lives. So, so it's like when you're taken away, then you find out the people, the people that you miss, those are the people of your heart and you're not missing the, um, the, the big, uh, all the noise, you're just missing the important noise in your life. Yeah. The stuff that matters. I mean, I think that like we can, we can take a lot of, um, the people and things in our life for granted. Like we don't really realize how good we have it. I mean, if you, if you look at how the world has improved over the last hundred years, I mean, it's amazing. The last hundred thousand, hundred thousand years. It is amazing. You're less, you're, we're living longer. You're less likely to get murdered. You're less likely to get sick of whatever you're, I mean, just all these things have improved. And there's this, uh, there's this guy I talked to who was a researcher at Harvard and he did this study on this concept. Uh, the dorky name for it is prevalence induced concept change. And it basically is this idea of problem creep is that humans have this built in problem finder. So as we face fewer and fewer problems, as we have over time as a species, because we keep improving our lives with technology, we don't actually perceive ourselves to be facing fewer problems. We just pick the next problem, but because things are so much better, we're picking problems that are progressively more hollow. So for a lot of people, I realize that the world still has problems that we need to fix in this country and other countries. But for a lot of people in the U S we have first world problems, right? This is the science of first world problems. So this is why, like, I was late to my yoga class is going to ruin someone's day or, oh, they ran out of my favorite dish at a restaurant and people get literally upset about that. Right. Whereas thousand or a hundred thousand, 2000, 200,000 years ago, it's like all this stuff we have in our lives now, it would just be draw jaw dropping to everyone. They'd be like, oh my God. But we don't ever have that reaction. So we're less grateful for all that. Is it almost like we need a, um, <clears throat> like a, a, a status quo of problems because our mind is looking for problems? So is there a way where we can steer ourselves into problems that are better for us? That's a I good guess? question. I think, um, I think for me, what made me um, more grateful for everything and realized that a lot of my problems before was, was spending that time outdoors in Alaska, because I'll give you an example. It's like, before I get up there, hot water, hot running water, just the thing, just the thing, right? Always has been, always will be. When I was in Alaska to get water, we'd have to hike like a mile down to this stream, get it in like these water bag things that would become heavy when they're filled with water. And by the way, the stream is also where the grizzlies hang out. And then we'd have to hike it all the way back. And it was always freezing. So then we'd have to warm it up on this stove, right? We get back into civilization and then I'm at this airport, this tiny airport, and I go into the bathroom and I go to wash my hands and the water hits my hands and it's warm. And like the biggest grin ever <laughs> crosses my face. Cause it was like, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. So I think the average person needs to find ways to sort of get them out of this like amazing stuff we have, whether that is, you know, for me, that was Alaska, but I also, um, 
I also volunteer at a local homeless shelter. So you can see like, man, I have it pretty damn good. Right. Cause we'd oftentimes, we don't have these moments that sort of smack us and say, Hey, things are pretty good. Even if you have problems in your life, legitimate problems, probably most other things are pretty good. Right. But we don't, we don't ever get, we're never aware of that. There's no reason to be, our brain is, is not programmed to see the, the grand scale of things. So that's the, another thing that the Harvard researcher told me. It's like in the past, just identifying the, the next problem, it kept us alive because things were problematic. We we're always trying to survive. It was a struggle, but you put us in a world where there's not a lot of struggle and it's relatively easy to survive. Now we just look, look for problems that aren't really that problematic. It's, it's funny because I, I, I do a little volunteering and people are always like, oh, that's so good of you. And I'm like, no, I don't do it for them. I do it for me. Yes. <laughs> they, you know, they, they come along and that's, that's fine, but I show up because it helps me. And there is kind of a selfishness to it for me. I mean, I'm not putting that on you, but at the yeah. same time, it's just like when I do it, I'm like, okay, I, the feeling's good. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's like going to get my methadone or whatever. If I was yeah. a junkie, you know, it's just like, I'm going to go get my methadone and volunteer. And it's, it's not a badge. It's, it's what I got to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, and you know, I think that, uh, I talked to this researcher a while ago who studies this kind of stuff. And she was like, yeah, okay. People volunteer because it makes them feel good. Who cares? Right. Yeah. It's yeah. like, what's the opposite? Okay. Don't do it because like, there's this, you know, selfishness. It's like, who cares? Right. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. No. I mean, personally for me, I I like to acknowledge, I'm like, no, part of this is my ego. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it's okay. Totally. (laughs) So when do you, when do you start going, I need to look into this. I need to start diving into this, you know, why, why we're, why are we, why do I feel too comfortable? When, once, when was the first time you're kind of like, I got to look further into this? So I think the very first time is that, um, uh, as I talk about this in the book, is like my family history, I come from this long line of men that are just hell on wheels and they all have drinking problems, right? I mean, you look at the Easter family uh, prison records and it is long and thorough, you know? So I don't know my dad because he never, he was just out doing whatever, Um And I started to sort of find myself living that same sort of lifestyle, like definitely had a drinking problem. Uh, But the reason that I drank is because life can be hard, a challenge. You've got some unsureties with yourself when you're younger, whatever. Well, alcohol fixes that and it fixes. It's a really easy way to fix that. It's like, it's, it's the numb you can bring. It's almost like there's a lot of voices and activity going, you need to be doing something else. You need to be doing something else. And he goes, no, 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 be quiet. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like, I kind of describe it as like, I always felt like just like I've been in a pressure cooker. Right. And the minute that I take a drink, it's like the pressure releases. Now that works until it doesn't. Right. Cause it's, uh, I, I like to say that my favorite drink was always the next one. So, <laughs> you know, when I was, I was kind of one of those drinkers and eventually, um, just over time for one reason or another, I realized that that was going to kill me. Like, you know, that lifestyle, it's not sustainable. It's going to kill me. And, um, go- getting sober really was like the most uncomfortable thing I'd ever done in my life. I mean, this is the thing that had worked forever. 
And now it was kind of killing me. And now I had to do the difficult work of figuring out, okay, well, why the hell did you drink in the first place? And how are you going to repair all this damage? And that was uncomfortable. But by going through that discomfort, my life became better across the board, like full stop, 100%, everything in it. And so it kind of opened my eyes to like, oh, if you want to improve yourself, not only yourself, but by proxy, the lives of others around you too, like you might have to go through some discomfort. And that sort of set off this little nugget in my head. And then I ended up going on that um, trip I mentioned with Donnie up into Nevada. And that kind of made me think like, oh, well, like I was comfortable through drinking, but we've engineered everything in life to be like comfortable and easy and effortless. And like, I wonder if there's any downsides to all these comforts that we now live in all the time. So then I end up going to the Arctic and that really sort of cements it. And I can see that like, yeah, like we've changed so much with our environment. It's all to make things easy and effortless and challengeless, which is great. You know, we're living longer, but we really need to offset that with things that sort of push back at us. And um, we need to get out of our comfort zones in a lot of ways sometimes to improve. And it might, I mean, the reunion with your family just must have been amazing coming back from uh, the Arctic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that's funny <laughs> is, <laughs> and there's this, uh, there's this study from the 40s that actually confirms this, is once you have, once you start really losing a lot of weight, because we only brought 2,000 calories up there and we we're burning like six to 8,000 a day. So I lost like 10 something, 15 pounds is... Um, amazing to see my family, but also when you lose weight, your brain starts to obsess about food, especially when you've lost a lot of weight fast. And so I live in Las Vegas and they're like, you know, where do you want to go out to dinner? This is like the first night. I'm like, I want to go to a, the nicest, all you can eat buffet we can find in the casino. And I am 1000% sure that place lost money on me that night. <laughs> it's <was> just like <laughs> to be back in like this warm building with just as much food as I could ever have that actually tasted good. Cause we're eating like cliff bars up there, you know, uh -huh. with the people I love, it was just like, Oh man, this is, if this isn't heaven. I don't know what the hell is, you know, what, what, what casino was the buffet at? Cause if I uh, ever go to Vegas, I'm going there. Well, now the problem is this was all pre COVID. So I okay. don't even know which ones are open anymore. It was, oh. um, it was at the Bellagio, I think. Yeah. Huh. But now we're having to rethink buffets, which is, which is right. So, That's right. Yeah. 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 Even the whole, yeah. even it's funny, even whole foods. I that my go-to uh, lunch was the salad bar at whole foods. And I would yeah. just go in there and just make my big old salad. And I felt good about myself. Now, all of a sudden there's no salad. And, that, and it stressed me out. It stressed yeah. me out that the salad bar was closed. It, my, my comfort was told it not only is a global pandemic happening, but I can't go put get the my tongs in on the salmon that I want, and that's like making it that's like tripling my anxiety. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like too much change all at once. Humans don't like it, even though I mean, in the case of your salad, it's like eh, whatever. Maybe you learn something, you know, that there's other food you like. But I think in terms of the pandemic, it was like it was a really hard thing for everyone. And especially if, you know, you lost a family member, lost your job. Um, but at the same time, I think it helped a lot of people learn something about themselves and also helped society learn things. Like, for example, do we have to commute into an office five days a week? 
I don't know. And if we don't, are we going to live better? Well, seems like probably, you know, um, we're learning new things about online work. We're learning about how we probably should be generally healthier because, you know, there's just like being very overweight and not having a lack of fitness seemed to be associated with a lot of the comorbidities, right? You had a higher chance of, if you were to get the virus, you were less likely to, or you were more likely to face complications. So I think it was kind of like this really uncomfortable thing we had to go through that sucked, but we also learned something from it. What's I, I, I mean, it just, you know, it twisted my mind all over the place, especially when we had like the lockdowns and it's just like, mm-hmm. don't go outside. And I'm like, crap, I should have got a dog. Yeah. <laughs> what, who do I look at? I'll, I'll look at a screen and, um, and then I, you know, and then there's a point where that feels comfortable. Like, it's just like, oh, okay. I'm in my cocoon. I go out and take, I take my garbage out. I get my groceries delivered. This is the new status quo. Now, as we get out of it and, and now I'm getting uncomfortable going to the grocery store and just being like, okay, Hey friends, let's hang out. And it's, it's like, Oh my God. It's, it's almost like I, when I, when I have my first hug from someone, I hadn't had a hug in like, you know, 10 months. And I'm like, I was hoping I didn't come. <laughs> it was just <laughs> like, I was hoping I didn't lose bodily function because it was, it was, it was like intense. It blew my yeah. mind. And it was, a, it's a new discomfort to actually get back to normal for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. And it probably made you appreciate those hugs, right? It's like, Oh, it's in a, in a big way. And I'm, I don't want to hug certain people. I'm like, these hugs are very important. So I need to hug my friends. You know, it's just like, hug. I used, I used to hug everybody. Now I kind of sit back and go, I got to hug. I got to hug my buddy first. And then, (laughs) and it's, and it's not a hug. It's an embrace and it's a little too intimate. And we might need a postcoital cigarette after the hug. But. <laughs> I love it. Yep, exactly. You've learned a lot about how to hug, how to hug well, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But but I did the wrong thing. I did gain weight. So I'm trying to lose the I'm trying to lose the COVID 35. You know, some people got COVID 20. I got oh, COVID 35. Yeah, well, so. it's it's um that's easy to do because look, it's um food is comforting when there's a lot of stress. Um, you know, there's this evolutionary mechanism we have that helped keep us alive in the past when food was hard to come by where the brain, it favors, uh, calorie dense food and it more food always makes sense, more sense than less food, any given context. Right. So as we evolved and we didn't have enough food, it's like, when we get to a food, we would try and eat as much of it as possible because it would help us put on fat. So the next time we didn't have enough food, if we couldn't find food, it was like, I'll just draw from my fat reserves. Right. But now that same thing can backfire when we have food everywhere for one. And then two, we don't have to move around as much in life. I think, um, the average American exercises more than 14 times less than our ancestors, you know, to live in the past, to live was to put an effort and exercise wasn't even a thing because like, why would you be doing this thing that just burns calories for the sake of burning calories, you know? They had no treadmills in the caves. (laughs) No, no. I think the treadmill was actually invented initially. I've heard I'd have to fact check this as a torture device in prisons. (laughs) Yeah. And it still is, right? Yes. 
That makes so much sense. I, I look at my treadmill and I'm like, I got to get on that. And then I walk away. But if, yeah. every time I'm on it and then, you know, and I feel great when I get off and I'm like, why didn't I do that before? You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, and I'm, I'm older. I'm like, why haven't I learned this yet? You know, it's like, why do, why do I keep giving myself excuses to not do something that I know is going to make me feel good. And then I feel good when I do it. And then I avoid it still. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I go back to the evolution thing. It's like our brains have 2.5 million years of wiring that says, don't move if you don't have to. If there's food around, eat the calorie dense stuff, try and eat a little too much of it. And now we get into this environment where that doesn't serve us, but it's like, good luck, you know? Like I'm surprised it's, yeah, it's, uh, and so I think the message, like the way I think about it is that we see a lot of messaging around weight and exercise. That's like, why aren't you exercising? Why have you gained weight? It's like the people who exercise and don't gain weight. Those are the weird ones. If you look at it in the grand scheme of time and space, like you're the weirdos. So I think part of it is like realizing that it's totally normal to not want to exercise. And then also accepting that, that you still probably have to, it's like, I didn't want to learn to read when I was five years old. I didn't want to go to school. I didn't want to obey the traffic laws today, you know, but I did. And so it's kind of one of those things where you go, okay, this is just part of the deal because we also know that, um, fitness is like the best way to ward off all the diseases that kill humans. Now, heart disease, stroke, cancer, even if you get in a car accident, if you have a higher level of fitness, your survival rate is about three times it would be than if you had too low a level of fitness. So I don't know. Makes sense. You know, um, we were talking earlier about the, uh, the, getting the digital information and, and, and I've, this is something I've thought about and it may be way off base and just go, Tony, this is way off base, you know, relax. But, um, with, with how, like I notice how much alcohol, uh, commercialism comes at us. You know, I, I watch a baseball game and it's just like, it's in your face, beer, beer, beer. I'll watch UFC and it's just like vodka, vodka, vodka. And, um, and it's just like, I, sometimes I think the kids are going to be all right. And like a hundred years from now, they're going to be like, I don't care about that. I'm not going to buy it because it's because people, you know, back in the day in the 2021s were poisoning themselves. And why would we do that? And, what what do you what what I mean? Just this is you know this is a um, I'm not on shrooms. I'm not on anything. But but maybe this is a shroom conversation. But what what is the future a hundred years from now? Like what do you think? Do you think people are gonna like, get on this and go? Wait a second. We can't. We need to be more uncomfortable. We need to not have these quick fixes. You know, it's uh, you know, um, Bacardi's just going to be out of business because everyone realizes, oh, that's just uh, that's sugary poison. I, I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. I think it kind of depends on what we're talking about. Um, I know at least. Yeah, I don't know what I'm talking about. So (laughs) maybe it's what you're talking about. (laughs) Um, I know in the short short term, they project that obesity rates are going to continue to climb. So I think that it's supposed to be in the 80s. It's um, I think 70% of the country is overweight or obese right now, but it's supposed to be in the 80s in the next, I think by 2030 or something. So that's, that's raising. Now the alcohol question is a good one. Um, because I think when you, I think a lot of these laws we have around substances are just 
like we just we just made them up right it's like there was a religious precedence or whatever that was like oh yeah alcohol's fine but marijuana nope mushrooms nope it's like and, and we didn't really know anything about them i think that alcohol is probably um more unhealthy than something like marijuana um i think you're also seeing a lot of really fascinating research around uh mushrooms and the treatment of things like depression and anxiety and even just like reframing life for people um helping them sort of get out of themselves for a minute which can be good so i don't know i mean i could totally see a world where in 100 years like people just are you know they don't drink as much um and maybe other substances are used more therapeutically. I, I don't know. That's a great question. Like even bars, it, 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 you know, I used, I mean, I used to go to a lot more bars than I do now, but it was, but then I realized I'm just trying to be around people and not mm-hmm. feel lonely. And then it's just yeah. like, wait, I don't have to do that at a bar. I could do that at a coffee shop. And yeah. then, it, and then I would just have, I would go to a friend, you know, that I used to meet at the bar all the time. I'd be like, let's meet in the morning and have a cup of coffee. And we'd yeah. be like, what? That's weird. And then we just sit there and look at each other and awkwardness. And it was so much more fun than being at a bar. I'd rather be awkward with, with one person than around a bunch of people who are just, you know, kind of tipsy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to, you know, there's research that says people that have like one drink a day tend to live longer than people who have none. And I think that is probably because someone who has one or two drinks a day is probably more social. And uh, so they have a better network of friends, which we know that is really important for humans and longevity. Now, of course, there's a point of diminishing returns with alcohol, right? If you have say three or more drinks a day, that's going to take years off your life for sure. But there tends to be a sweet spot. And I don't think it's from the alcohol. I think it's just from the social element. So like, then there becomes a question of, well, now that everything is becoming so digital, are we removing those important social interactions from our lives over time? So I don't know. These are some of those things where kind of a wait and see, you know, I don't know. Well, it's, it's even like doing this show. I, I've, I never would do it online before COVID. It was always in person or in studio and people would be like, Oh no, they can't make it to Los Angeles. Will you still interview them? I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> and yeah. COVID hit. And then here we are, but I, but I've gained benefit from it. Cause then it's just like, Oh man, I get to like really kind of smash cut into people's lives without driving somewhere, meeting them, setting up my equipment. It's, and so I, I lose that, but I kind of gain from it. Like even when we count on, it's just like, Hey, what's up? Here we go. Boom. And we're in, and there's, um, there, there's kind of a coolness to it. I'm trying to figure out how to do it in person now where it's just like, Oh yeah. When you see me just, we're starting the show, you know, yeah. <laughs> but um, where I don't even know where I was going with that. I think, uh, yeah. Sorry about that. That wasn't a question. Was it a question? No, tell you, tell me. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that I think that at first the whole Zoom video thing that we were forced into was kind of awkward. Like people didn't, they were like, oh wait, is this weird? Is this normal? But I think it's getting more normal for people. And I think it's starting to feel more like an actual interaction where when we first started doing it, it was just like, is my camera on? Is my microphone on? Like, you know, right, right. Exactly. Weird. Yeah. Now we're so, now we're so used to it. Now it's our new comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So this all started, was, did this start because you got into journalism? You were a journalist? Yeah. So I, um, 
in college, I had this kind of weird major that wasn't journalism. And um, I realized I wanted to write. So I grew up. What's the just, weird major? <laughs> I made up my own. So I went to the school where you could make up your own major. And it was essentially a mix of economics, uh, international relations, and environmental studies. So I was interested in natural resources and all the laws and science behind them. And I thought I maybe wanted to go to like get a business law degree and work in like natural resource extraction. Um, and then when I was uh, maybe my third year of college, I took a uh, English class where I was writing environmental writing. And I had grown up reading a lot. I was a total magazine junkie and um, the class just clicked. And I was like, oh no, this is what I want to do. Now it's too late to change my major. So I ended up going to grad school and studied journalism, um, specifically science, health and environmental journalism. And part of that was just, you know, I figured if I could learn to write about how a nuclear reactor works in a way that people could understand, I could probably write about most things, you know? So from there, I, <clears throat> when I was in grad school, I did some internships at, um, where was I? Esquire, um, Scientific American and GQ, sort of like these part-time little job things. And because I had that background, a job opened up at Men's Health and I had the dude magazines and I had the science and that's what Men's Health is. So I ended up working there for quite a while, maybe six, seven years. And then five years ago, moved to Las Vegas to teach journalism at UNLV. When was your first article published? What, what, what was the, what was the, um, do you remember it? I don't even remember. Oh, is it? <laughs> I'd have to think. Probably something in something super small in Esquire. Yeah. You know, they had us do a lot of like reporting and so like a capsule type piece. Yeah, just yeah. like a tiny little piece in the magazine, probably. But, yeah, but I mean, you you ripped out the page and kept it and framed it, or no? <laughs> uh, I'm sure my mother did. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I I've kept everything that I've ever like ever appeared. I, I mean, I had a two page article twice in. I did a two page article in Penthouse on Irvin Welsh. Oh, really? And I did a two-page article on Buzz Osborne from the Melvins in Penthouse. So I had my Penthouse spread. That's and awesome. It, and then what the my favorite part of it, you know, yeah, the interviewing them is fine, whatever. Is making my mom in the Bay Area go buy Penthouse magazine so she can get the <laughs> clips for me. And I just wish I was there when she was going to the counter, going, "Do you have Penthouse? No, I promise. My son's in there. My son's in there. <laughs> How many copies did you get, Mom? Did you get them? Did you get them?" <laughs> I love that so much. That's great. Yeah. So it's like, it, I've written for mother Jones and penthouse, which is like the two yeah. <laughs> porn and leftist. Yeah. I love it. That's so great. It, yeah. It's, it's the little things in life that we get through. Right. It's just like, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, how was going on the Joe Rogan show? It was, it was super fun. Um, yeah. I didn't know what to expect. We showed up because it's COVID. It's like you have to, right when you get there, you take a 15 minute um, COVID test basically to make sure you're good to go. Then you go back in the studio and he's a super nice dude. He's, you know, th there's a reason that I think his show has so many listeners and that he's, I mean, he truly seems interested in what you're saying. And he also is one of those people who like knows a little bit about every single thing ever. Um, and he's wicked smart, which I think people don't realize. Um, and I think he said, you know, cause I, I'm the fear factor guy, you know, <laughs> um, but it was super fun. Yeah. I think he's the new tonight show. He's the tonight show for 20, 
the 2020s, you yeah. know, like with Johnny Carson. I mean, Johnny Carson used to break comedians and people would break out of that. And, they're, you know, the, the, the late night shows, they just drive me nuts. They're so tepid and just mm. so you could tell they're scripted. It's like, but someone like Joe Rogan who sits there and dives into conversation and just owns it. It's so refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, you know, his episodes are like three hours and people, yeah. people listen to him. And when you're on the show, it's like, I thought I was maybe 30 minutes in and I was like at two hours and something like it just goes super fast, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then here you're like 30 minutes in and you're like, is this three hours? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm looking for a comparison here to Joe Rogan. No, I'm kidding. I'm not. I'm not at all. Um, but that's fantastic. Uh, I think I got, I, I, I wanted, you know, I'm going to walk away from this and go, crap. I didn't ask him about this. I didn't ask him about that. Um, what do you yeah. think you left out? I don't know. I don't either. <laughs> you know why you can't do half my job for me? <laughs> See, I'm too comfortable in this position where it's just the discomfort of um, the discomfort of talking to strangers immediately. That's kind of fun. I've, yeah. I've actually, I've actually understood because that used to be really hard for me to interview. And this was, you know, 15 years ago when I would start interviewing people and I would like obsess and I'd be like, Oh crap, they're not going to like me. Oh crap. Yeah. And you know, and then you get to a point where it's okay if they don't like you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that's interesting that I see among my students is journalists and young people, they don't want to get out and reach out to people anymore. It's like they want to email someone. They don't want to get on the phone because they grew up texting. Oh, they don't want wow. to go out in the world because you can learn so much behind a screen. Whereas like all the, any halfway decent story that I've ever written, I had to like go somewhere to get it done and like meet the person in person, and like kind of embed myself with them. So I am a little bit worried for the future. And I think you're seeing this in media now where there's this tip into like, everything is done behind a screen and we're missing a lot of those moments that don't have this filter through them. Right. Cause it's like, when I'm reporting the book, it's like, I, I would just go live with people for a few days. And it's in those moments where, you know, they are, I don't know, making breakfast for their kids and their kids kind of in a pissy mood. And because of this, so are they, and you throw a question at them and the way they answer it is like so much better than when you're like, okay, now we are having our official interview, you know, because there's like more of that filter. So I think it'll be interesting to see what in particular happens to nonfiction uh, moving forward. And, then, and I don't think it'll be fun because I don't want you, because we lose the story when we're not there, you know, like you can't write about San Antonio, Texas and not be in San Antonio, Texas. You, you exactly. know, just, you got to know the smell. You got to know the, you got to know the energy. There's different energies to different cities, different, you know, there's, there's a feeling um, yeah. that you can never convey just by looking it up online. You have to yeah. be there. I agree hundred percent. And you, yeah, you can't convey that to the reader unless you're there and get those like little random pieces of, you know, flair and color that just like bring a story to life. So when did you start teaching journalism? About five years ago. So mm -hmm. it was, I had been at men's health for a, quite a while and just, you know, you get to a certain point where I was doing a lot more editing and sort of like, yeah, figure out how journalism is going to make money, try and save journalism, you know, <laughs> not writing yeah. as much. So I kind of wanted to look around and see what was out there. I always thought that teaching, um, 
at a university would be a fun gig because half of it's teaching and half of it's continuing to write. And my resume just happened to land on the right desk, uh, right as UNLV was looking for someone to teach health journalism. And given my background, um, it worked out. So we packed up and moved moved across country, and it's uh, worked out ever since. So. That's a good move. I applied to Syracuse for a, a screenwriting position. Oh, did um, you? Yeah, yeah. I didn't get it, but I was looking at the weather. <laughs> <laughs> going, you know, talk about comfort crisis. I'm from San Francisco and I live in LA now and I'm just sitting there yeah. going, well, man, this would be a great job, but whoa. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, we had, we'd wanted to move West and my, my wife was like, we can move anywhere West that doesn't get snow. So that left us California, Vegas, Phoenix, and that's about it. We ended up in Vegas. Well, that's a good move. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. <laughs> Mike, thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. You are on your radio dial at 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.